Hi there, you're listening to Science Soapbox, a podcast at the intersection of science, policy, and advocacy. Much to my delight, we're here with the whole crew again. I'm Avital Percher, here with Devin Collins. Hi. And Mariam Zaringhalam. Hello. Who is joining us from D.C. And so today's interview is with Marcus Erickson who has a very diverse career, but his real expertise is on plastic in the oceans. And he is currently doing a tour talking about his new book, Junkraft, an ocean voyage and a rising tide of activism to fight plastic pollution, published by Beacon Press. And he took a little bit of time out of his tour to chat with us about his book and what his work is. Yeah, he was uh, in New York for a couple of lectures. And like you said, as part of his tour, and he carved out a nice chunk of time for us to talk. And uh, what was really cool is he actually brought some uh, props. Yeah. Well, I mean, not props, some examples of, of some of the things that he finds on his voyages. And we'll put some pictures up for you. You have the plastic being Eden. Also, we are, as I mentioned, Mariam, thank you for joining us once again. Uh, What are you up to nowadays? Yeah, so I was really bummed to miss uh, your interview with Mr. Erickson and also with Congressman Joe Kennedy, even though you guys were staying in my apartment, the three of us sleeping in my in my tiny bedroom all separately. Don't worry, mom. But, but I uh, I had to miss that interview because I was at a data storage workshop and I'm really pumped to be back here. We, after the, recording this intro, are going to be discussing the first book of our Science Soapbox book club, Ooh. which is C.P. Snow's The Two Cultures. Um, much, much tension <laughs> building up in the studio. I think it will be a contentious but friendly conversation. <laughs> so if you, if you all want to catch up and read the book before our discussion comes out, um, we will put try to find a PDF version and place it uh, in our show notes so that you can find it and read along and maybe yell at us through your speakers because we love that or tweet things. Tweet also works. And also, if you have any suggestions for books that we should read and discuss, uh, please let us know. You can tweet us at science underscore soapbox. Fantastic. So on that note, let's jump into our interview with Marcus, and we hope you enjoy. Stay for June 4th, 2008. In darkness, another wave slams against the underside of the airplane, strapped to 15,000 plastic bottles. I pull the hatch closed to avoid more spray in my face. Water now sloshes under the plywood floorboard, between the bank of batteries and beneath our damp sleeping bags. The homemade rigging moans and whistles as 50-knot gusts rip through. A wall of water engulfs the deck and blurs the windshield, and a cascade of echoing drips trickle through the holes I forgot to plug. Something's not right, I say. I think the airplane just slid across the deck, Joel replies. In these dark and timeless hours, we're still huddled on a relatively horizontal plane, so at least we're not on the verge of flipping over. We're near San Nicolas Island, 60 miles west of Los Angeles. I don't know if we're still there. And like me, Joel is wide awake, trying to stay warm, nerves on edge. We jump with each crack, moan, or sudden lurch of the raft. In the dim light of the coming day, I step outside into the sea. I think mechanically through those seconds of impending catastrophe, the airplane with only a few straps keeping it in place We'll fall into the water and float for a moment as the tail rapidly turns downward like a bobbing cork. 400 pounds of batteries loosely arranged on the floor. 
might come crashing onto Joel and me as the fuselage fills with seawater. It would probably be a quick drowning and will likely never be found. At that moment, I remove the satellite phone from the dry bag and I call Anna. Hey, babe, we're sinking. And that was the start of our odyssey at sea. <laughs> okay, wow. So that's, wow. Uh, that's quite a kickoff. So this was, this is not a fiction. This is not a work of fiction. This is your personal account of a voyage that you took back in 2008. Yes. This was the beginning of our organization, the Five Gyres Institute, doing research on plastics in the world's oceans. But at that time, 10 years ago, we thought, what's going to capture the public's, public's attention? People had this, this, this idea of this island of trash, this, this great Pacific garbage patch, a Texas-sized yeah. island. It's a complete myth. I think the, the, the media grabbed it, sensationalized the, the few bits of, of, of fact from science and made this, this mythical image. Uh, so trying to, to take that myth change it to what we think it is today more like a smog small particles yeah but also capture people's attention mm -hmm. we, we we sought to uh to do so via this rafting voyage to take all these plastic bottles stuff them into old fishing nets make this this contiki style raft and set ourselves 60 miles offshore and we were let go and i saw hawaii 13 weeks later that sounds like quite an experience. So actually, I just want to take a, a step back. And um, you mentioned that there's this mis misconception that there's a huge island of, of garbage, but it's actually more like smog. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and how that works? It's interesting. When the issue first came, I think, to the public public awareness, there there were a, only a few a handful of studies. One was by Captain Charles Moore, and he described, you know, in 11 transects he did in the North Pacific, in an area as big as Texas, he said, going back and forth in about two weeks of being at sea, he described this Texas-sized area. Then another scientist up in Tacoma and Washington said, well, there are these garbage patches based on rotating currents. Media grabbed that and said a Texas-sized garbage patch. And this mythology of an island was born. It's interesting. For better, I think it grabbed people's attention because yeah. then it had such shock value. Right. So you wonder where the role of misconception to bring science to the forefront of people's attention. But the, the blowback from that is having to tell people there is no island. I've crossed the five subtropical gyres, these circular currents, these gyres where these mythical islands are supposed to exist, and they're just not there. Yeah. You go there, you look across the ocean, you might see some fishing buoys, you might see some tangled fishing nets, and an occasional bottle cap, maybe a toothbrush might go by. Mm -hmm. I've found lots of army men. Any, <laughs> anything thick in plastic survives at sea. Yeah. What you don't find out there are the plastic bags and the styrofoam cups. They shred into small particles long before they get to the middle of the ocean. Mm -hmm. So, But those small particles, you drag a net in the gyres and you get this handful, uh, this, this kaleidoscope of plastic confetti. That's in every sample I've taken around the world. Over 60,000 miles of sailing, 20 expeditions around the world from the Arctic to the equator, Antarctic, the five gyres, the Bay of Bengal. We're going to Indonesia next summer. Every time you drop your net in the water, you get this handful of this confetti. Fascinating. Yeah. It's everywhere. 
And so with that in mind, the focus of the Five Gyres project is to do research as well as raise awareness for this whole, I, this whole issue of the la- this misconception. Yes. So, so 10 years ago, I think people, they, they had this idea of plastics in the oceans, but the science work wasn't really done well. We knew, we knew about the area between Hawaii and Los Angeles and some here on the East Coast United States, Woods Hole had done a lot of work. The Oceanographic Institute had done some work in the Western Atlantic. So Eastern North Atlantic, we knew nothing. Western Pacific, we knew nothing. The south of the equator, where there are three gyres, no expeditions had been done previously. So we saw this opportunity. And it was, my wife and I said, you know, we, we've done a couple expeditions with other scientists. We know how to sail. Let's begin our own organization and answer this big question, how much trash is floating in the world's oceans? It took us five years to publish those results. Mm-hmm. And, and our results, we, we just published uh, a couple of years ago, actually. The big number is 269,000 metric tons of trash floating mm-hmm. from 5.25 trillion particles. That's our estimates based on dropping our net in the water in well over 1,000 places and working with oceanographers that do modeling of currents to estimate how much trash probably should be there, then we are able to populate the models with real data. So we, we produced this this estimate. It was the first estimate of its kind. That's all, that's shocking to me. I, I, I remember seeing, I saw your, me- your data measurement points because you have on the website, you show mm-hmm. where you've picked up the data. And obviously, since there's limitations and funding and everything, I was like, look how much work they did and look how much how much still needs to be done on the map because there's so much area to cover and so it's such a difficulty in obtaining this how is this not out there already and it was astonishing to see the results as well and i was completely blown away from seeing that well we are more more sea than land Mm -hmm. 70% of the world is is Mm -hmm. ocean so to get out there and try and survey the whole planet is very difficult Mm -hmm. We have just a drop in the bucket, a literal drop in the bucket, you know, trying to understand what's in our, in our oceans. Mm-hmm. But the science is out there, uh, and there's more and more happening. What I'm seeing now, though, 10 years later, is the shift is moving away from what's in the middle of the ocean to what's leaving our land, the land-sea connection. And this is where the, the science becomes more political, mm-hmm. and, and the debate becomes uh, more high-level policy. And, and this debate goes back to the 1970s. If, if you remember, anyone older in your, in your audience remembers the crying Indian campaigns in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, the Keep America Beautiful was the organization. And they had this, this campaign. This is after the 1960s. An environmental revolution was happening. And the industries that make plastic saw this threat. This threat because of the identification of plastic as being a pollutant. So they funded Keep America Beautiful, founded by... Philip Morris, PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, uh, Anheuser-Busch began this organization and their campaigns, like the crying union campaigns, was a Native American shedding a tear as a plastic bag tumbles by. And the tagline was, people cause pollution. And that was the, that was the strategy, was to shift the narrative away from industry responsibility for the kinds of products made from plastics, shifting it to the consumer is causing litter. And your city is not cleaning up waste and divert any regulation or attention to design. That's amazing. That, that we were talking a little bit off, off mic about gun control. And that sounds exactly like the, the, 
guns don't kill people people kill people shifting the blame but people to, with guns kill people right mm-hmm. yeah that I I had never really thought about the the uh, the history of that that campaign I think I'm just old enough to remember seeing it pretty regularly I think it would play my my family and I would go to drive-in movies a lot and that was like I think they're a little bit more old-fashioned than you know the the theaters that you would go to so they would play that before every movie and and that's what it's connected to in my mind but Thank you for sharing that that story. I'd never heard that before. Well, I think it's important to understand the context of the environmental movement. You know, yeah. who is um, who is influencing the, the the common narrative, right? And since the '70s, industry—I mean, they're they're very smart, very savvy, and they have their own subjective interests mm-hmm. to maintain um, or, to, or to protect the market share of their product, yeah, which is plastics in in every form possible. So they really fight any regulation of design. And they put the onus of the problem on the public for littering and, and you and I as taxpayers, our municipal systems that we pay for, for not cleaning up enough of the trash. Mm-hmm. And right. then and, and then denying the responsibility for the kinds of products made. And that's been typical since the 1970s. Even the scientists in the 70s were were being attacked by, by industry. One great example, the first paper on this plastics problem was published by this man, Ed, Ed Carpenter, based here in Woods Hole on the East Coast, and he was doing plankton toes in the North Atlantic. He was finding bits of plastics. And in 1972, the very first paper saying, hey, I'm finding this abundant, small, microplastic little pellets and polystyrene little beads. He published that, and within a few months, the, the Society of Plastics Industries, it was a big trade group at the time, still exists, came to him and said, what are you doing? you are attacking an American industry. You're impacting the economy of our country by publishing this. You should stop, cease and desist attacking our industry. He's like, I'm a scientist. I'm, a, I'm an oceanographer. This is what, what I'm finding. Mm-hmm. You can't deny this fact. What can we do about it instead to, uh, to attack the scientist? And he published 13 papers that year, which is phenomenal for a scientist. <laughs> yes, yeah. it is. But he was asked to leave Woods Hole. I met him, he teaches now at San Francisco State, and I met him and he told me the story and I said, do you mind if I publish this? It's in my book, describing the history of this issue. So so my book is about this junk raft voyage, this plastic boat odyssey across the oceans, but it outlines the growth of the movement from uh, Ed Carpenter, his first discovery, all the way through Captain Charles Moore discovering this garbage patch in the Pacific, how that got amplified and maybe some misconceptions around the media sensationalism to the present day movement and where the fight is, where the upstream fight is between industry and environmental NGOs. Mm-hmm. So this book kind of outlines that. But to see the science from the 1970s, there was a trickle of scientific papers saying, okay, we're finding plastics in fish. We're finding plastics entangled by you know, marine mammals, marine reptiles, and seabirds. So when I first began this issue, Around 2004, was when I met Charles Moore, began working with him, he says, if you want to get up to speed, read these papers. And he hands me like 20 or 30 papers. That was all that was known. Today, for the last couple of years, there's a paper a day getting published, mm-hmm. just about. Mm-hmm. So the science is there. Now everyone knows, okay, there's, there's plastic in the oceans, we're understanding better how it behaves, the dynamics of trash at sea, where's it coming from? What are the products? But more importantly, what are the brands? Hmm. And, and who's responsible? And then you get back to the same fight for the last four decades. 
industry is going to going to wash their hands of responsibility, push it on you and I and taxpayers and cities. Mm-hmm. And what we want as environmental NGOs, we want to say we all share responsibility. Of course, anti-litter campaigns are important. Of course, better waste management has to happen. But you got to make smart products. So that raises this fascinating question that one thing that you can probably see in almost every industry in the United States is that the requirement for innovation is opposed in the name of profits. There is a system that works already. There's a plastic that they can make. They can produce it en masse and make a and generate it cheaply and efficiently. And you're coming along and saying you need to change something. And they're like, well, that's not working well for the keeping us in the black. So let's avoid that. What's available nowadays? I, I, I specifically ask this because you there's in um, one of the documents or one of the pages I was reading preparing for the interview, you were talking about the lobbying group and the Personal Care Product Council, and you were discussing how they wanted a biomimetic that was essentially just the same thing that was integrating. And I, I think that in this context, is there are there options now that are more accessible other than just saying, just don't use the plastic in a face wash, which is also reasonable, I think. All, all the alternatives are there. Mm-hmm. It's having them compete for market share, which is hard to do. One example is a, is a polystyrene cup. The one you might you might still see at Dunkin' Donuts, and, and I don't know if I can mention yeah. these companies. I, I Jamba was, Juice used I'm to I'm so surprised them. that I ever see them anymore because I, I thought they were gone, but yeah. There's... But they're cheap. They're right. so cheap. It's hard to find an economically viable alternative that competes with foam polystyrene. It's a fraction of a fraction of a cent to make one polystyrene cup. You can make thousands and uh, uh, very easily distribute those. They're lightweight. There's not much transportation cost in terms of weight. There is in volume. So, but to find the alternative, they exist. There are paper cups. There are paper cups with, uh, with paraffin or in some cases a, a very thin bioplastic lining that can work just fine to hold light, uh, uh, hot liquids. It's getting market share. So the, the alternative, what we're looking for, what we want in the big picture is, is to move our linear way of thinking economically. Linear means companies make a product, they sell it, the consumer consumes it, and then after that, it goes to the dump or the incinerator. But mm-hmm. industry washes their hands responsibility. You and I, as, as taxpayers, we have to deal with, with waste management. Mm-hmm. Shifting that linear way of thinking to a circular economy. In a circular economy, there's a natural cycle and a technical cycle. A natural cycle is a banana peel. It can be a compostable food tray. There are, there are ways to, to make things fit a, a biological cycle or a technical cycle. Mm-hmm. A technical cycle are things like our iPhones or cars or, or these, these more durable goods that benefit society. But when they come waste, how do we dismantle uh, recover materials and remanufacture products? How do we fix products? So keeping what we make in those two cycles is called the circular economy. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to shift to that. Mm-hmm. Well, I should say we, we've historically thought of that, thought in that way, because in the past it was all biological materials. It was all benign stuff. If you look at the, uh, at the waste generated by, by ancient cultures, mm-hmm. it's things that are benign. It's, it's wood, it's, it's pebbles, it's plants, it's things that don't stick around forever. Unlike yeah. today, you've got lots of toxins and other synthetics. So shifting, still using those materials, those synthetics, but not in a, in a, in a linear fashion. That's the challenge today. So all the alternatives exist. Just have them economically fit in one of those two circular models is, is challenging. Yeah. That, that makes me think of um, 
the, you know, the, the stats that you hear, like this, this polystyrene lasts for a thousand years, this plastic lasts for 500 years. And you think about it and it, and I'm guilty of this, but thinking about it in the form that in which it was manufactured, but you know, what your data and what many, many other scientists are seeing is that it doesn't stay in that form. And even though it doesn't break down, it, you know, it goes into forms that are very damaging for wildlife very damaging for the environment um and i was just thinking back just to go back a little bit to the smog versus island i think garbage island really grabbed my attention and i'm sure in you know much the same way as it grabs other people's attentions but then thinking about the reality of that of that problem it really changes what you have to do about it right so what are some of the ways that you deal with smog versus dealing with an island that's very interesting because that's that's a source of a lot of debate. That's part of the blowback of having a misconception lead public consciousness. Yeah, because it got me into. I I care about it because it's it's something I can imagine, but thinking about plastic being distributed in the seas, and I think you've even written about this. I remember you had a HuffPost article um, that was saying, you know, if you think about it like air pollution. Mm. In, in the atmosphere, that's more akin to what this is like, right? Well, if you think, you know, if, if it were an island, you would just go get it. Mm-hmm. And, and I've been in this issue now for 15 years, and I've, I still get maybe once a month, every two months, someone sends me an idea. Some young engineer says, I got a way to fix the island. I suggest if we shift the metaphor to the smog analogy, which makes much more sense, think of how we solved the problem of smog over our cities in the, in the U.S., around the world. Beijing now has a, has a smog problem. But in the U.S., in the 1970s, you look up and you'd see this massive clouds of, of soot from, from combustion engines and power plants. So people looked up and said, okay, I can see the problem. It's obviously, it's a fine particulate over a large area, and it carries its own burden of toxicity. So that's what the that's what it is in the oceans now with plastics, but on land people look up and said there's smog. That's what it is. No one said, well, let's get vacuum cleaners and suck it up. Let's go <laughs> grab all the little particles. No, people just said, okay, prevention is key. And very quickly you saw industries shift our combustion engines to have catalytic converters on our mufflers to decrease the amount of smog coming out of engines. And then scrubbers on on on, on power plants, yes. mm-hmm. and you've seen the smog of our cities largely clear up. So applying that mentality to the oceans is is key. Prevention is key, and that's when I mentioned earlier that we're less focused on ocean pollution, and now looking at the land to ocean connection mm-hmm. and stopping the flow, yep. turning off the tap is where all the focus is now. Interesting. But then people ask the next question is, well, what about what's out there? What about all that 269,000 tons that we, that we documented and published two years ago? As we travel around the world sailing, every island I've been to, the windward side where the wind and waves are crashing is covered in trash. The ocean's kicking it out. If you give the ocean time, it will beach, it will eject, regurgitate all that trash. We've got it, but we've got to stop the flow. And that's where our, our focus is. Yeah. Do you think that um, this n- focusing more on the land-sea connection allows people, I would imagine, uh, again, like if you can see it, 
then it means more to you. And then that means you can put more, you know, uh, apt pressure on local legislatures and, and on, you know, on your government and, and leadership. Do you see that becoming more effective in that way? Or, or is it, are there effects that you didn't, you know, you wouldn't expect to see? I'll give an example. So when we turned our boats inland and went into the Great Lakes, uh, it was myself and a scientist, Sam Mason, from SUNY Fredonia here in New York. Um, she and I published a paper on microplastics in the Great Lakes, and we found these little small little beads, perfectly round spheres, like as big as a grain of salt, that were like orange, purple, and blue, and red. And it was strange. We'd never seen that. But they matched exactly with the little beads and facial scrubs. Johnson Johnson Clean and Clear, Neutrogena products, even Crest toothpastes has little beads, microbeads, the exact same size, color, shape, chemical composition. So we had a smoking gun. We were able to go to those companies and say, hey, look, you're finding your product. It's washing down the drain, out to sea. It's a pollutant. We know, we know, we know it's your product. And they fought us on it. Some companies didn't, like Lush Cosmetics, they switch quickly. They said, okay, we, we get the science, we're going to switch. Mm-hmm. But the big ones, uh, uh, big U.S.-based companies, Procter mm-hmm. & Gamble, Johnson Johnson, were very slow to move. But we worked hard with a coalition, over, over 50 organizations, a couple senators. We had great media. We shared media, shared infographics, shared videos. To, and eventually, three years after publication, President Obama signed the Microbead Free Waters Act. And this was our first time going inland, recognizing a product, being within national waters so we could apply the Clean Water Act, and it worked. So more of that, more being inland and identifying where the sources are, Mm -hmm. and not just the product, also the brand, to make them aware, give them a chance, okay, this is, the fact is the fact. Maybe you can take this information and shift. Yeah. That's actually a really great example of uh, how I was wrong earlier. Um, yeah, it, it all makes its way. So this is actually a great transition point. When I read that you were the person responsible for, for procuring the data about that microbead, because that hit the media. And it was such a thrill for the thought that I get to chat with you about it and hear actually more about the policy side, because that is something that is fascinating because you brought in a data-based information and you worked your well, you worked your way up to the point of senators and introducing bills, and that is something that we don't hear of really very often, at least not from almost like a grassroots nonprofit oriented perspective. So for me, I think what was so interesting about that was you you mentioned that there were fifty groups together, right? That were working together. What did you have? Do you have any thoughts about what was the most productive, or where you were really seeing things hitting home and what was working in this endeavor? Well, yeah, uh, I have to say it, it wasn't just me. It was a bunch mm-hmm. of scientists. We had, we had a, maybe six scientists on the, on the, on the, on the paper mm-hmm. that published. All had our different roles. Mm-hmm. I just happened to be the, the lead scientist pushing the paper through to publication. And the campaign, we began the campaign uh, while it was all happening. I had another colleague, she's a lawyer. She drafted model legislation. Mm-hmm. Her name is Lisa Boyle. I had a big conference at Tulane University Law School in New Orleans. And then from there, the campaign just amplified and organizations came on board. And the key was having the right people, the right skill sets, having mm-hmm. folks that know how to, how to bring policy to the public, how to negotiate, 
how to how to stand your ground. We had groups Story of Stuff. We had we had Greenpeace. We had Environment California, mm-hmm. Surfrider. We had groups here in in New York, uh, New York, New Jersey, Waterkeeper and Baykeepers. It was an amazing coalition of dozens of NGOs, but then sharing assets, sharing a common voice, and finding the politicians, the senators that were in support, and having them carry that ball further. Mm-hmm. So it, it it made it very clear that that working together, and I think this sounds so cliche, working together you're more powerful, but really it is. That's key, you know, sharing information, putting aside your your organization's ego, like other words. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sharing this common common vision of the change you want to see and focusing on that, that led to our win. Trying to replicate that model, it doesn't always work uh, in all cases. Mm-hmm. That was a, a very quick, and we're surprised how fast that, that happened. You know, one other key to that was a public disgust mm. uh, and, 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 offend, and being offended by that design of microbeads because they're designed, you're told, Put these on your face to be prettier, to, to scrub your face. Mm-hmm. Then wash that plastic trash down the drain. People were offended. I had dentists come to me and say, you know, I've been pulling microbeads out of people's teeth for the last decade. And one, one dentist who does uh, surgeries, he does skin implants, he said, uh, if I get a, a little microbead and he's found them under tissue in someone's dental surgery, it doesn't heal. Hmm. So we, there was a gross out factor as well. The public was offended, so and there was outrage, and that led to uh, to this win. But we're we're working just as hard on other other things, on plastic bags, on polystyrene products, on straws. It's happening. It's slow. The formula is constant pressure over time, hmm. and you will win. I'm convinced. You actually brought some. Uh, I've I've been staring at these on the table a little bit, but you brought some examples of what what you've confined and and with some evidence of uh of this plastic getting in places where it doesn't belong do you mind uh, describing sure so i, I brought these? some some plastic trash in the middle of the ocean that we found uh there's a laundry detergent bottle which you might have on your your kitchen sink and this is a, a flower pot a plastic flower pot and these i have found uh the north atlantic and the pacific and what you don't see here is the whole item. It's been been chewed on, shredded by marine life. And this is an example of how the plastic smog forms. So this bottle here, this white bottle, the green cap, you can see the very bottom is torn open. But along the, the edge is a jagged edge with triangular bites taken out. The other one, it's this, this pink crushed flower pot. You can see these large uh, semicircles uh, cut out of it. Those are turtle bites. These large circles, no, semicircles. Mm-hmm. So some turtle found this plastic flower pot floating in the ocean, and was either testing it to think to see if it was edible. Maybe there was a pla- um, a biofilm growing on it, and that made it tasty. Um, this bottle here, perhaps the same thing. For some reason, triggerfish were nibbling on it. And triggerfish, if you ever seen one, they have a very attractive overbite, <laughs> and they'll grab a plastic bottle or a plastic something, and their front two teeth will, will make an indention on the plastics, while the bottom teeth, a triangular lower jaw, will slice off hmm. a little triangular fragment. Mm-hmm. So all these triangular little jagged edge, these bites, mm-hmm. that's how the microplastic one way can form to feed that smog of the sea. So, there, so once a piece of trash goes out to the ocean, like the thin films from plastic bags and potato chips and candy wrappers, 
or, or foam polystyrene or a straw. As they float, there are a few things happening. Sunlight is making it brittle. Waves are then crushing it and breaking the brittle plastic products. Fish are tearing it apart. Mm -hmm. There's some low-level biodegradation that happens, some chemical degradation. So very rapidly, these things, these objects leaving land become microplastics. They're very quickly feeding the smog of the sea. And therefore, again, the focus on stopping the tap, closing off the tap of trash leaving land to our Mm -hmm. oceans. Yeah. And just for our listeners, we uh, will have pictures of these um, examples that Marcus has brought in. So you can see they're actually really, it's really amazing how you can directly see the evidence. <laughs> but you know, it's not just in the oceans. I had an opportunity uh, two years ago to go to uh, Kuwait. I hadn't been there in 25 years. I was, I was in the Marines back in the first Gulf War in 1991. And I went back to Kuwait, a totally different mission this time, to survey the Gulf of Arabia for plastics. And we went to uh, Qatar, um, uh, Oman, and United Arab Emirates. Went to Dubai. And in Dubai, I met a man, uh, Uli Werner. He's a German veterinarian, and he was invited by Sheikh Mohammed to build the best camel hospital on the planet. It's amazing. $50 million he got. And there's a pen of 50 camels over here, a big taxidermy studio, a huge hospital, a, a dead camel on the gurney. It's a surreal sort of space, you know, what, what, what money can buy. And he said, you know, you want to see plastics, come with me. So we hop on his car, and we go drive 60 miles into the desert. <laughs> and I mean, for me, it was just nostalgic seeing all these rolling sand dunes and uh, acacia trees beautiful red powdery sand we get to the top of one there are, there are the waves in the in the sand from yeah, the wind yeah. and we look across the horizon i look down and i see a dozen piles of white white bones and dr Werner said okay these are camel skeletons camels they they die and wherever they drop becomes a pile of bleached white bones eventually we walk down to one and he pulls a rib out of the ground out of the sand he hands it to me, then he pulls out a rib and he says, okay, let's start digging. So we're using this big blade-like rib to pull the sand out of the middle of this dead camel's chest. And as we do that, I'm seeing wisps of plastic bags and rope. And we get to the, we pull all the sand out, get to the center of this, and here's this mass, maybe I'd say two feet by two feet by one foot deep, this giant, as big as a medium-sized suitcase of just tangled plastic bags and rope, maybe three four, three to 400 plastic bags in this animal's chest. And Uli Werner, he said, you know, I began seeing this 15 years ago. The first camel came to my, my hospital and it died. It had this massive trash in its gut. It causes blockages. It becomes very septic as bacteria live in the bags in the gut, and it gives them a false sense of satiation. They dehydrate, and they don't eat, and they die. So we're now, actually right now, we're engaged in a study with uh, 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 Dr. Vern and myself, and this was one scientist, Amy Lusher, who studies marine impacts, looking at on-land impacts, potentially population-level impacts, where trash is affecting a regional population of organisms. Uh, the camel specifically. Hmm. That was eye-opening for me to see here is this negative externality of our trash harming an entire species in that one region of the desert. 
I think there's nothing more, you know, you, in my mind, the desert and the ocean are so disparate, but you can see these same sorts of effects happening in these two very different biomes. But it just points to how, you know, it the, the world is just one thing <laughs> and our plastic is making it into the world, right? And you see, you know, in, in other other areas from ocean acidification to climate change, you see all of these these effects, these these problems that were were maybe slow growing in the 30, 40, 50 years ago, they're becoming amplified very quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're going to see, I'm going to see in my lifetime, before I die, by 2050, I should still be around, hopefully, we'll see, you know, population density reach its terminal point where we can't hold on this planet more than 10 to 11 billion people. Mm-hmm. We're going to get there. We're, ne- we're already seeing overpollution. We're seeing resource scarcity. We've got to get it right pretty quick. Yeah. Industry recognizes as their subjective interest is to maintain the, the production of plastics, to keep that 4% growth rate they've enjoyed since the 50s. Mm-hmm. They went from making almost no plastic in 1950 to making over 300 million metric tons of new plastic every year. They broke that 300 million ton mark uh, in 2013. They anticipate by 2030 making 600 million metric tons. That's per year. Mm-hmm. And by 2050, between 1 and 1.2 billion metric tons of new plastic each year. Where is it going to go? Mm-hmm. Where all the trash go? What industry is pushing now in anticipation of meeting the public demand for a rising middle class to meet population growth, they see the way to maintain their market demand for plastics is to burn last year's trash either incineration or waste energy technologies, pyrolysis or gasification. I I bring this up because I recognize now this great divide on how to solve the problem upstream. Mm -hmm. You have industry that wants to, to make as much as possible to secure their market demand, no regulation on design, and then turn the rest of it, burn it, and make energy on the back end. Then you've got hundreds of environmental NGOs worldwide, over a thousand, that are saying, we want a circular economy. We don't want to have this this waste being burned in a linear fashion. We want to keep in a circular fashion, shift the, the whole, whole economic model to more of a, a service industry to maintain, to repair, to recover and recycle and not burn things in the back end. So you're seeing many cities pushing for zero waste initiatives. In, in Southeast Asia, this is perhaps the, the, the battleground for incineration versus zero waste. In, in Indonesia, Philippines, and Vietnam, um, in, in that region, the Southeast Asia, where our models show most of plastic pollution is emanating from because of poor waste management, mm-hmm. industry is going in and pushing for waste energy technologies, mm. which are expensive. It's going to take massive World Bank loans for these countries to afford those. At the same time, you've got hundreds of grassroots organizations and, for example, chapters of Gaia, uh, Mother Earth Foundation, Greenpeace, that are getting good at scaling the the zero waste uh, alternative. And what what that looks like is to take your your community and instead of hauling your trash, the big giant landfill, instead have a decentralized waste management system where you're getting really good at composting. 
your former waste pickers going door to door and collecting clean recyclables. Whatever's left over, the residuals that can't be composted, can't be recycled, taking a close look at those and saying, do we need these in our society? How can we meet that need Mm -hmm. in a different way that's not polluting? So you're seeing these decentralized material recovery facilities are booming across the Philippines and Indonesia right now. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a good ending point. Yeah. We, so we we always like to have like a quick wrap up, wrap up question. Actually, a couple of things we had in mind is um, we thought it was so amazing that you, number one, that you built your own raft that you're, that you're going on your expeditions with. But like I, what I actually learned today was that they were built out of entirely recycled materials. <laughs> and um, so number one, that's amazing. Number two, so what... N- other big expeditions, perhaps on a you know on a homemade recycled materials raft, uh, or maybe not. Um, what is up next? So we do. So the first expedition was this junk raft. There's just one expedition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the raft made to Hawaii, 88 long days at sea. I could have walked faster. <laughs> um, had we missed Hawaii, I doubt we would have made it to Japan. Mm-hmm. The currents would have taken us there, but I doubt we would have survived. The raft was falling apart. But it was all junk. It was 15,000 bottles, fishing nets, holding them together, 24 sailboat masts we cut off to make the deck oh, and put a Cessna 310 aircraft on top of that. We had modern solar panels and a wind generator and batteries and some modern navigation equipment. Other than that, it was all recycled, just, just junk. That led to 20 more expeditions on real boats, on, on real uh, research vessels. We were taking people uh, out to sea like as an eco-tour. People would pay to join us, and that would help pay for the charter, and that got us around the world on 20 expeditions. What's next? Uh, in February, I'll be in New Zealand, and this is this is wonderful for me because I get to meet people that are that are, that are doing things upstream. So the, the, the indigenous communities, the Maori communities, they have been taking the lead on zero waste, like zero waste in their communities, and they've decided, you know, the, the land and the sea is theirs, we want this legacy of trash the next generation. So I'm going to go there and learn from them what, what zero waste looks like on their terms. And then they've invited me to join a traditional waka, that's a, a canoe, and get in the water in Napier. And from there, f- sail five days to Wellington for the, for the big waka festival. And we'll drag our trawl. That's in February. So for me, that's a chance to look at the, the coastal impact of trash. And I'm working with uh, another colleague, Chris Wilcox from Tasmania. He's going to walk along the coastline and document what's washed ashore. We're trying to understand how much is on shore and then the near shore aquatic environment and the interplay, those coastal dynamics. We're doing that again in Indonesia. So in August of next year, we'll then go to Indonesia and sail from, from Bali to Komodo Island. Same thing, looking at coastal dynamics. That's where the research is now, to stop that land-to-sea loss of trash. Hmm. So on the horizon, these two big expeditions, and then who knows what's after that. This is all just so awesome. Um, Come sailing. And it's, I, you know, I've never been, and I I've, I grew up in Indiana, so not a lot of water around, but now I live on the East Coast, and, you know, I'm under my own power, so I need to check it out. But yeah, thank you so much for sharing your your story with us and telling us a little bit about your work. Can you tell us uh, where we can hear more? And uh, if you have a Twitter, Facebook that you can plug, we we always like to give our guests a chance to do Sure, sure. If you check out our our website at fivegyres.org, you can see how to to become an ambassador, how to get on our our 
mailing list. Lots of information there. So anything you heard today, you can follow up on our website, fivejobs.org, and, and check in and learn more. Also, the book, uh, The Junk Raft, it's on Amazon. If you go to the Five Jars website, you'll see the book there. Uh, the, you, you can get a code for 20% off the book through Five Jars. And I, I, think you, I think you'll enjoy the book. I tried to weave an adventure story, a love story with my wife, <laughs> with a lot of trash talk. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. That's our show, folks. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Science Soapbox. For more episodes at the intersection of science policy and advocacy, you can check us out on the web at sciencesoapbox.org or follow us on Twitter at science underscore soapbox. You can also subscribe to our episodes on iTunes or Stitcher. And while you're there, leave us a review so that more folks can discover our podcast. Special thanks to the Rockefeller Outreach Lab, where we record our intros and outros, and to Visager, who made the music that you are now listening to. Until next time, I'm Miriam signing off for Devin and Avital. Thank you.